Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss voracious practices and voluminous resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Really glad to have Todd Scasewater on the podcast today. Todd is the founder of Exegetical Tools and the co-founder of Fontis Press. Todd, how you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to be in KC. It's a good place to be. Yeah, I, I'm liking it. It's been a little bit better weather here as of late, which is nice. Winter it's been was very cold this week, dude. I just went through a really bad winter. So, I mean, I say bad winter, right? It's not like Wisconsin, mm. but it's been mm. pretty rough. Everyone in Minneapolis right now is very know, upset with you. I know. Well, I'm from Southern Missouri, just four hours from here, but like it's just a different world. Like we're in the Ozark Mountains, which are really just hills, but I still call them mountains because why not? And but Kansas City is just not that way. So. I'm going to say it was a better week. You're going to say it wasn't a great week. It was a great week. It was thank good. you. It was great. I appreciate you. Best week of my life. That's a bit much. I don't think your wife would be pleased to hear that as you were up here away from the family focusing on some writing projects. This is true. But you were writing a little bit on New Testament discourse just after Faunus Press has released a new book along these lines, Analyzing and Translating New Testament Discourse by David Clark. Yes. Who's David Clark? What's this book? Tell us a little bit more. Well, David is a new friend of mine. Uh, we, I, I'm editing a volume called um, Discourse Analysis of the New Testament Writings, and that's going to be through Fontes Press as well. It's going to have a discourse analysis of every New Testament book by a different author. And David has written a lot of things uh, on discourse analysis of the New Testament, of the Old Testament. So I invited him to contribute the chapter on Jude. And in doing so, we, we started talking, and I came to learn that he was a Bible translation consultant with the United Bible Societies for many decades. And um, he kind of told me his life story, and he's actually one of the reasons I became interested in Bible translation myself. So as we talked more, he shared with me that he had uh, these memoirs from his days of being in different countries, helping out with different projects. And so um, when he gave those to me, I, I thought, I'd love to read these, and I, and I did, and I thought, these are, these are really great reads. They're informative about Bible translation, about the consulting process. They have great insights about linguistics and um, people who don't have the Bible and why they really need it in their own language. So I asked him if we could publish those, and he said yes. So, um, and then on top of that, uh, he has these memoirs, but... He's been a Bible translation consultant, and he's, he's done that missionary work, and he's done really great work, but he's also a scholar. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in linguistics from when he worked on the Ekpeye language in the Niger Delta, and uh, he wrote his dissertation on a grammar of that. And then as he was doing consulting work, he wrote a ton of articles for especially the Bible Translator, which is a uh, journal that's focused on Bible translation. And so he, I, I think he's probably written over 100 articles for that journal, just yeah, wow. very prolific. And so uh, as I found out that he had a bunch of essays on discourse analysis uh, on top of the Jude one that I had found, uh, I went and he, he sent me a bibliography. He said, here's everything I've written. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, there's a lot of um, discourse analyses of entire New Testament books like Jude, Ephesians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 3rd John, um, and a couple others that are in the book, Analyzing and Translating New Testament Discourse. So I, I asked him if we could collect these and publish them as a, a one volume. He said, yeah. So we have four books coming out with David at, at this point that we're talking um, of Islands and Highlands is his uh, six years in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. 
and uh, that there's they're pretty they're pretty funny. He's actually a pretty funny writer. Uh, I enjoyed reading it myself. I learned a lot about just what it's like to go cross culturally into uh, the bush, so to speak, and to have to fly on airlines where if you miss the plane or it gets delayed, you're stuck there for three days. And um, he was there in the 70s and early 80s, so it was also kind of a different time. But uh, learned a lot from that book. We have um, a book called "Babes in the Jungle: A Year of Life in the Niger Delta" that'll be hopefully out by the time maybe this podcast is released. And that's on his year in the Niger Delta with the Ekpeye people. That one, even more so, I think I enjoyed reading because it has a ton of insights about the local people and the effect of not having scripture was having on them. Yeah. Maybe we can talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, and then he's got another book from his time in Russia uh, that we'll be releasing later. Um, Analyzing and Translating New Testament Discourse is his academic work, and um, that uh, should hopefully be out by the time that we publishes podcasts as well. And so he's got about six or seven discourse analyses of entire New Testament books in that. He's also got three articles that are analyzing displaced vocatives, which means uh, usually vocatives come at the beginning of a sentence. Think of like the household codes in Ephesians, Colossians. It'll have the vocative addressing wives, husbands. But what if the vocative is displaced? It's not the first element in the sentence, and there's a couple, one or two words or a phrase before. Is there any, any significance to that? He believes there is uh, from a sociolinguistic perspective. And so what can that tell us about the speaker and the receiver? It actually can tell us something. He's got three essays on that, looking at the three different genres, um, Gospels, Epistles, and then I think Revelations, the third. And then he's got a couple essays, and this is kind of funny, um, he's got a couple essays on just a couple phrases like after three days in the Gospels and um, what's the other ones? Uh, Father in heaven. And he had given me his bibliography of all these New Testament essays he'd written, but these weren't on there. And so in the Bible translator, you can find articles from a certain year backwards that are online for free. And I was just browsing through these uh, the Bible Translator Index, and I found these other essays by David Clark. And um, there, there were these two essays on translating these phrases from the gospel, the gospels. And um, I put them in there as I was as we were collect, creating the volume. So when I finally sent David the proof, the kind of the the typeset version of proof, um, he wrote me back and he said, "It looks great. Um, I'm you know." I'm a little curious, though, where these other essays came from. I don't remember us talking about those. I'm okay with them being in there, but I actually don't even remember writing them. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I think they were from the 70s, and it was probably during his time in, in Papua New Guinea and when things were crazy. And You know how things were in the 70s. <laughs> you know, things just were... <laughs> writing articles for the Bible translator, and who knows where yeah. they came from. Yeah. He, he didn't even remember. It was so funny. That's so awesome. I was, I was really happy that I found them and was able to include them, and, and I hope that David is happy that we included them in there. <laughs> he seemed like he was happy, but he's also a very, very nice man. And so if he was upset with me, he definitely let it slide. Mm. He hasn't, like, recanted them or anything. He has not, no. Okay, that's good to know. So... Obviously, um, more more older gentleman, right, across the pond in, yeah, he, in the U.K. He's, now? He's now in his 80s. He's over in England. Okay, great. And, I mean, has had, clearly, I mean, you already mentioned he's prolific, but, I mean, he's not just holed up somewhere churning out articles from his, you know, pleasant English countryside correct, office. Correct. So, um, first of all, why does someone who's out working with 
people who don't have a Bible translation, um, why do they take the time to write articles about discourse analysis? Mm-hmm. At least from you know you just your your conversations with him, and um, so for, first of all, why that? And then um, second of all, what do we what do we gain from scholarship that's on the ground? So so first of all, why did why would someone take the time to do that when they've got all these needs right in front of them? Mm-hmm. And secondly, what maybe advantage might that scholar have? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, the first one, uh, maybe one of those forgotten essays will help us understand. So his essay on um, Father in Heaven, you know, there's a lot of different ways that in Greek that Father or God in Heaven or uh, that, that that phrase is expressed. And what he was asking in that article was, um, are all of the different ways that this is expressed, do they have the exact same referent? Or is there some kind of difference? Does it connote something different? Or, um, because if they are all the same, then in a target language, you can translate it the same way. And that's, that's very useful for people to know. Um, but then in, in some languages like uh, heaven might express, it might connote something like distance, like God is distant from us and he's not near. And so if you're translating our father in heaven, but a target language, heaven is not very good word. Well, you can use a different word that might express something differently that that actually gets across the sense of the original. But his point was kind of in all these places where the Greek phrase differs, it's linguistically okay to go ahead and just translate it the same way, but to pick an expression in that language that expresses truth and not something that would be untrue to them, you know, in their language. So for him as a Bible translator, he's getting this experience on the field and he's working with projects and he's getting, he's listening to other translators and the problems that they're having. And no one else is in the seventies and eighties. If you're in the Solomon islands and you're living there to do a translation, you're not, you don't have Twitter and you don't have a blog and uh, you're not putting out all these things that you're learning. So a translation consultant like him who's going around and visiting these people. He's able to glean all of these insights about, um, the problems of translating into other languages, the problems with specific language families and their dialects. And he's able to, to then say, okay, we've got the Bible Translator Journal where um, Bible translators around the world will read this journal. And so I've come across an insight like how to handle Father in Heaven because that's obviously something he was dealing with. And he puts it in there. He puts it out for all the Bible translators. Say, here, I, I found kind of a way to handle this. So use it. And everyone who's able to read that, um, that's just one article. You get article after article and books. And these things are helpful for Bible translators around the world because they're dealing with specific problems in their languages, which are different from the problems in other languages. Mm -hmm. So any kind of insight is helpful. And that's why he felt the need to uh, kind of use his educational background, his, his love for writing to benefit other Bible translators around the world. Okay, so second part of the question. I mean, you've already hinted at this benefiting Bible translators, but but what maybe advantage in some occasions would someone who's doing Bible translation work have with these linguistic questions that, you know, let's say I hole up and I just study everything I can about linguistics and I'm just staring at Father in Heaven. Is is there any difference? Is there a, a potential difference? Is there a potential advantage for the Bible translator? Uh, of being on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, You've got to be in a community, in people. You know, language, um, 
if you think about uh, like sociolinguistics or you read anything about sociolinguistics, you, you learn how integral to language that society and cultural factors and community is. Um, every, the, where we live and the people we're around, the, the culture that we're in kind of determines or at least heavily influences how we speak and how we communicate with each other. So if you are on the ground in a, in a people group, among a people group, and you're living with them, and you're not just learning about their grammar from a textbook, you're getting so much more and learning about their language in a living way, and you're understanding the cultural things that go into their expressions and why they say things and when they say things and the, the tone in which they say things. Um, these are all things, you know, there's a lot of things that can't go onto a written page, things like tone and um, speech acts that are evident from the way people say things or their body language. And, uh, you know, a lot of people share similar tonal uh, tones and, and body language when they're expressing similar meanings in the same language. So all, all of those things you experience and learn on the ground, you cannot learn them just from books. So people who have been on the ground in, in these kind of situations, uh, they are they have the experience. And we back in our little ivory towers or wherever you are, we can benefit from reading their accounts, from reading their research and hearing what they've learned and uh, trying to figure out if we can put that into practice ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, if you just want to reflect theologically on the uh, genesis of language as a curse and yet the um, the telos of language as a means of God being glorified in many tongues, nations, tribes, and languages, then there's something I think really incredibly special about somebody who's trying to minister the gospel translate the word of God for a group of people who is not his own group of people who don't speak his language, who have to actually pause and reflect on the way a language is used more than someone who's in a shared language culture does. And then actually gaining insight into the biblical text, which is written in a third language um, and benefiting people around the world by saying, Oh, this makes me wonder if maybe, Paul or John or whomever might have been trying to use this term this way. Um, I think that there's something incredibly special about that, actually. Yeah. doesn't mean that necessarily, right, you know, someone who's a Bible translator who's got a particular view on, for instance, you know, the, the discourse macro structure of a particular book doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be more accurate than someone who's you know, hold up in a library trying to figure it out. But at the same time, um, it may be worth giving a little bit of weight to, right? Yeah. So what are some of the things, I mean, you mentioned lots and lots and lots of articles, lots and lots and lots of works. Give us maybe just a smattering or some key themes that maybe come out, or even just specifically in what we've published here in this book. Analyzing Translate New Testament Discourse, you mentioned what kinds of things are in there, but maybe what are some of the the most helpful pieces that yeah. someone who's going to pick up that that book are going to find in Clark's work there? Yeah, well, probably the most important chapter in that book is about 100 pages long, and it's a, a discourse analysis of Matthew, his gospel. How many pages is the whole book? Whole, uh, it's about uh, 270. And one of the chapters is 100 pages? Yes, sir. So this is an important chapter. Yes. Tell us a, more about this yes. chapter that's half this book or a third of this yeah, book. So one of the things I found out in editing this volume on uh, that's coming that, that I'm editing, um, I, I had to find authors for every New Testament book. I found out that there are, first of all, not that many people who 
who are competent in discourse analysis and New Testament to, to be able to easily find 20 people to commit. Um, a lot of people who have written on it have, have since died or, you know, or they just were too busy. And so it was hard to find a lot of people. The other thing I learned is that hardly anything has been written on discourse analysis of the Gospels. Hmm. A lot of discourse analyses have been written on Philemon and Jude yeah, right. and John, uh, first, first the Johannine epistles and shorter Pauline epistles because they're easier to handle. Yeah. They're small. Um, when it comes to the Gospels, uh, no one's brave enough. Mm-hmm. But David, um, he, I, I think this was originally published in 1982, if I remember correctly, in Scriptura Journal, like a special edition. And it was, um, he co-authored it with the, the footnotes were kind of like all the biblical studies stuff from a colleague, but David's discourse analysis was the body content. And what he did is he kind of took... Uh, uh, kind of like drama terms, like act and scene and episode. And he broke the whole um, gospel down into these to three main acts and um, scenes within those acts and then little episodes were within the scenes. And he dis- what he discovered were like these um, s- kind of symmetrical structures throughout the gospel. And in a way that as I was reading it myself first, I was thinking this is way too... Like, there's way too much structure that he's finding in this. Uh, even in the genealogy, some of the patterns, and he has tons of diagrams in this chapter, and he diagrams them out so you can see it visually. And I was thinking, there's no way. You know, like, he's, he's got to be eisegeting this. And, but the more I, I read this, I was thinking, no, he's, he's really uncovering uh, legitimate structures that are there in the gospel. Uh, a lot of uh, what he calls key patterns, you, you could maybe consider them chiastic structures like ABA. But um, he calls them key patterns, and then these key patterns get more complex. And uh, so it's a very important chapter. It was written in, I think, like I said, around 1982, which means that it was uh, very early on in the the development of discourse analysis. So the methodology is, um, the main parts of kind of David's methodology of discourse analysis is, first of all, to define the units in which a sentence should be taken or an utterance. And uh, anyone who's familiar with Ephesians 5.21 will uh, understand the hermeneutical implications of where, what unit you place a verse in, right? Mm -hmm. So that that makes a big difference in how you interpret the household codes, Mm -hmm. whether submitting goes with the the previous. Yeah, carry that verb to all the other. Right. So um, that's probably maybe like the most extreme example, like Mm -hmm. huge hermeneutical implications. But... Um, so he's using elements of like cohesion, especially and linguistic patterns to figure out the units uh, of language and then to find patterns in those languages and to find kind of uh, some um, communicative intent in those patterns. And that's a big part of his methodology. So that Matthew chapter, big deal. And it's also a big deal because not too many people have, have seen it. I've, I don't think I've ever seen it cited. And I've never, I don't think to this day in searching that I have found a discourse analysis of an entire gospel. I don't think, uh, if there is one out there, please comment somehow on the website and let us know about it. But this might be the only discourse analysis out there. And uh, I, it, it was so good. And as I, I actually compared his analysis to modern analyses of the structure of Matthew's gospel, which is slightly different from, from discourse analysis. But I found that his analysis was actually... Um, kind of independently confirmed in a lot of ways by modern, more recent scholarship. 
And um, even where they departed, I actually preferred David's analysis to some other uh, analyses that big players and kind of the structure of Matthew were going. So uh, I asked David actually if, if we could include his analysis of Matthew in our um, edited discourse analysis volume, discourse analysis of the New Testament writings, and uh, we, we just ended up co-authoring it together. I condensed it down to about 30 pages, and then I kind of uh, went through all the modern scholarship on Matthew's structure and uh, added in footnotes and kind of added in some of my own stuff into the body text. So um, you can read the full version in Clark's work, Analyzing and Translating New Testament Discourse, or you can read kind of the condensed version. Uh, maybe you start with the condensed and you, you work to the bigger version. Okay, I like it. So clearly um, some linguistic academic heft in Clark's work here. But then there's there are these three memoirs. So one is published now, or it's it will of, be of islands and highlands, of islands and highlands, and that's Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. What what, what are the years on that? Uh, it's about 1976 to 1982. Okay, so so what was uh, life like for a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea and the <laughs> Solomon Islands between those years? It was rough. Okay, holy cow, as one I, might guess. I I mean the the biggest thing that I recall from reading this memoir was. That uh, the the, air, the the airplanes were terrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's like he'd show up at the airport and uh, the airplane's supposed to take off at four, and it gets delayed till nine, and he hangs out till nine, and they say, "Oh, never mind, we're not flying till tomorrow." And uh, but actually, tomorrow, they, you know, it's the weekend, so oh, we're not going to fly till Monday. So he's supposed to meet somebody like on Friday afternoon, and the plane gets delayed till Monday, and then he's stuck in the city because, of course, he didn't have a car. And so he's got to, like, find a way to get to the airport, which is maybe 100 miles away. And so once he gets there, what's he going to do now? It's not like um, Delta's going to put you up in a Hilton for the night. So uh, it's, it's a lot of traveling mishaps, a lot of uh, interesting encounters with some really strange people. Uh, he, there was a missionary, um, he, I think he was a Catholic priest who was in the area, and they had this kind of uh, little community there in either PNG or the Solomon Islands, and they were having dinner one night, and they had like a wine cellar, and so uh, it was a big deal there, and they would get out the wine with dinner and stuff, and they were telling them how the founder of their community had died, and uh, David asked, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. How did it happen? They said, oh, it happened when he was like, uh, you know, working around in the wine cellar, and some stuff fell on him and crushed him. <laughs> and, and I, you know, he said, oh, it seemed kind of like, like awkward that they said it, but I guess it was just kind of like, well, just kind of life as a Catholic priest, missionary out in the middle of nowhere, you get crushed in your wine cellar. Man, so there were, grapes of wrath right there. <laughs> yeah, so there were a bunch of a bunch of accounts like that where he'd just meet people. Some of them were total characters, and uh, I guess if you lived out in the bush by yourself, you might be a character. Some of them were really normal and became long-term friends and colleagues. He was doing work on one of the UBS um, Handbooks. I think I think it's Amos, maybe one of the Old Testament prophets. He was working on that during that period. So it was my impression from reading that was um, nothing, hardly anything went like he wanted it to. Everything was filled with futility. There was a ton of work to do, but um, he did a lot of work. But a lot of it was scattered by traveling mishaps and problems and logistics that today. Um, might be lessened by technology and things like that. And hopefully the uh, the airlines have gotten a little bit better nowadays. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the, the airlines back in the 70s were roughly equivalent to the United States Post Office now. 
It's, it's the only thing that I could think. And that might or might not have anything to do with the personal vendetta that I've experienced recently with a book. Uh, but, um, you know, he's got his he's got his burdens and I've got my burdens, you know. Um, I need my Trimper Longman book on wisdom literature. Ooh, come on, people. Come on. So, okay, interesting. Now, he goes from there to Nigerian Delta? Uh, Nigeria had actually been earlier. Really? So, yes, We're just really. publishing out of order. This is like a Star Wars thing. It's true. Star Wars. We're just emulating this fantastic space saga. Yeah. So the PNG one was the one I read first. Yeah. Um, because so I'm so I'm editing and publishing these. So but as a, as going into Bible translation myself, I was really interested in the PNG one, and so okay. I read it first. So mm-hmm. we're publishing out of order because I'm selfish. Okay. Yeah. But the Nigerian one, he was there uh, earlier in the 70s, and he was a student, a PhD student. And he went over there to, to help with the Ekpeye language. They were working on developing a writing system at that time. And so he was there to kind of like analyze the language and um, get to know the grammar and stuff. He ended up writing his dissertation on the Ekpeye language, the grammar of it. And while he was there, he was able to um, help out with some like consulting on – they had a couple meetings on getting a writing system. Like, And there were some interesting decisions to make. For example, they had – uh, several more, I forget exactly how many, but I think there was like eight or nine vowel sounds that in that in their language. And they have, of course, kind of they're going to use uh, the script that we would use. So they got A-E-I-O-U, and then how are they going to depict those other three or four vowels? Mm-hmm. And so they really had two options. Um, one was, um, it, it's in the Nigeria book, I'm, I'm, my memory's failing a little bit, but one was like to put dots underneath a vowel, mm-hmm. And another one was to use underlines or something like that. And so there's two options, and they, this was part of uh, this is part of what goes into Bible translation is you got to develop writing systems, and they have yeah. to be systems that work pragmatically and that the people are comfortable with. So you got to sell it to the people, hmm. and they got to be part of the process and buy into it. Well, part of the problem they had was the printing, uh, the, peop- the the local place that was doing printing of, of books. Um, it turns out that it wouldn't do the dots or the underlines. And someone else had uh, recently been experimenting with a writing system as well, and they went to they went with the other way that David wanted to do one way. He went with the other way. They took it to the printing place, and it didn't print the, those extra things. So they ended, there ended up being no differentiation between um, the vowels. Um, oh, I think the other way was to like put an R. You could put an mm. R in there to next to the vowel or an H or something. But then he said the problem with that is you end up with like R's all through the page. Mm-hmm. So R and H, whatever it was, or you could do the dots under the letters. So these are like uh, that. That was an interesting anecdote from yeah. the book that kind of shows the difficulty. It's it's not like you just go over and you just start. Um, you, you take your Greek Bible and you just start listening to the local language and you just start learning it and you just start translating. That's not, it's not that simple. There's all kinds of uh, linguistic problems and all the way down to do they even have a writing system? Yeah, right. And if they don't, there's problems with developing a writing system. Mm. So uh, that was awesome. Uh, one of the other stories that um, two, two, one brief and one a little more illustrative, one was uh, that really got me. There was a girl there in the village and they had churches and they have uh, a lot of Christians in the village they spoke uh, kind of a pidgin English, so David had a hard time understanding them at first until he really understood it. But uh, they didn't have any Ekpeye Bibles, and the, the Bibles they used in that area was KJV. So they didn't really have a great understanding of 
of Scripture. They couldn't really do discipleship very well. All they could do was go to service and kind of listen to the preacher, read the English Bible, and explain it in ekpeye. Um, so one girl was asking him one day, is, is, Jesus, is Jesus British too? And, mm. uh, and did, did Jesus speak English? Did Jesus look like you? I mean, she had no idea uh, about who Jesus was, when he lived, what he looked like. And, um, you know, maybe there's a lot of Americans in church who wouldn't know either, even though they have a Bible. But it, it just, you know, it, it just showed that um, there's a real need for people just to have Scripture in their hands, to be able to read it, to be taught it in their own language. And then um, there was a local Baptist preacher named Reverend in the area. So he also spoke this pidgin English and a paye, but he had the KJV Bible. And so you have the KJV Bible, very old English, and then you have kind of British English, which is pretty far removed from KJV English, but still intelligible. And then you have pidgin English, which David could barely understand. And the pidgin English speaking minister was using the KJV Bible. So he would read this to the people, and then he would extemporaneously uh, give a kind of an interpretation of the passage into Ekpeye, just explain it. So David was in there, and one day the the minister said, um, he said, you, would, you like a, would you like me to tell you what the sermon was about? Because David wasn't quite fluent in Ekpeye yet. He couldn't follow the whole thing. And he said, sure. So for his benefit, he, gave, he told him the sermon was about Rebecca and Lucy, uh, both males. And Rebecca uh, wanted to go out on a Sunday to hoe in the field. And so she needed to borrow a hoe from Lucy, and God was not pleased with this. Uh, God thought it would be much better for Rebecca to be in church on Sunday than to be out in the field hoeing and working. <laughs> and your face, yes, you look very perplexed. I'm just and, like trying to like <laughs> trying to redaction yeah. criticism uh-huh. yeah. source. What, yes, what where it comes? Yeah, what three passages did yeah. this come from? Yeah, but David said he was presenting this as an actual Bible story. Huh. This wasn't like he had come up with an allegory or a sermon illustration, but this was his sermon, was a faithful Baptist minister. He had nothing negative to say about this guy in the book at all. He was doing the best job he could to use the only Bible he had. And he comes up with a sermon that's clearly not in the Bible. Rebecca and Lucy are men, and it's just a moralistic. So how did, how did he get to this? Because he the only Bible he had was one that he just couldn't understand, obviously, mm-hmm. And that's what he was using to teach and preach to the people and to disciple them with. Yeah. And so it was stories like those from the book that I really, really enjoyed reading. He's got a great wit. I was laughing out loud, um, sitting on the couch next to my wife reading this, and I just cracking up laughing all the time. And uh, I was just like, it's really funny. Um, so I, I appreciate British humor a lot. That's why the British office will always be better than the American office. What? And um, there you go. It's, it's, a, it's a great read and uh, worthwhile. Steve Carell loves you way more than Ricky Gervais ever will, and you need to know that. Man, that's fantastic. I mean, just, yeah, to hear the, the, the passion for people, the compassion to even just to be in a culture not your own, but I mean to throw yourself headlong into at least inconvenience, if not, I mean, some, some major difficulty. Um, because you want people to know God's word and you want people to understand God's word and you want other people to be able to keep doing that work. Um, if I might compliment you a little bit, that's a little bit what you're doing. I mean, Dallas is not a foreign place to you. You're going to go down to Dallas International University, or maybe you're there. I don't know when we're going to release this podcast. Um, it is another country down there. It is a, Texas is um, 
as some people will say, the greatest country on, on earth. That's true. true. Yeah. I'm not as big a fan, but they do have Whataburgers there. And don't let's not look at you. are going to break my heart about the office. Don't break my heart about Whataburger. <laughs> let's just leave it at that. They just introduced a Dr. Pepper shake. <laughs> and I'm more than more than convinced that there might be a revival happening. You just had like six Pepsis earlier. You don't need any I more had, First sodas. off, it's Dr. Pepper. Second off, they just kept handing them to me. What was I supposed to do? I paid for it. It's free. Okay. So this has gone way off track. Yeah, I did want to say there's um, there's another uh, – one of the chapters in the book, it's, it's called A Brush with the Law. And so I <laughs> – yeah, I, I I came to this chapter and I'm thinking, oh, this could be juicy. What did Rebecca and Lucy do this time? <laughs> Lucy, got some explaining to do. So I I I open this. I'm reading this chapter and I'm I'm just so hoping that David got arrested because this would be such a great story. And uh, as it turns out, what happened was he lived next to a neighbor. Um, and that neighbor had, had, had left the, the village for a while for work, and one of their family members had come to live there. And that family member was a, a gardening extraordinaire, and uh, they started uh, growing some cannabis in the backyard oh. to, uh, to sell or something. Um, and, and so David kind of had this dilemma of clearly this is not legal, uh, but I'm like a foreign – I'm a foreigner, and – he wasn't even technically a missionary at that point. He was like a PhD student doing field work, but for the purpose of Bible translation. So he's obviously connected to the churches. It was a really awkward situation for him. He didn't know how to handle it, and uh, he kind of consulted with several of the local Christians and some of the other missionaries, and they were like, oh, you got to turn him in. So he had to go report it to the police, and this guy turned out to be kind of a troublemaker. And uh, so he he ended up not even being able to testify in court by the time he left the country and but I think the guy ended up kind of getting his desserts. But um, man, <laughs> so uh, yeah, the the things that you don't anticipate when you you know decide <clears throat> I want to do you know some doctoral work in linguistics. Yeah. And oh yeah, by the way, should I report my neighbor who's growing pot? Yeah. And <laughs> what are Rebecca and Lucy doing? <laughs> right. So if you think that uh, being a professor might be a little bit boring. It might be a reason to consider Bible translation. Very true. What would, I mean, if I just called up David, what would he say? Why Why Bible translation? Why did he do it? Uh, you know, he's he's very reserved mm-hmm. in his, as we've discussed, and uh, I think very in a very British way as far as I understand the, the British personality, uh, if the office is any indication of that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that he really has a passion uh, even if he's not super emotive about it, he's got he's got a real passion for scripture, and he has a real understanding. And he says this over and over in his Nigeria book that it's very evident that when people don't have scripture, it's it's tragic, and um, it's so evident that people need the word of God. And from his experience of just living in a place for one year where there were Christians but there were no Bibles, there were Bibles but they couldn't understand them at all. The sermons were not coming from the Bible. They were being just misunderstood. Um, he had, I mean, a girl asking her, was Jesus British? Mm-hmm. So this experience for him, I, I think, as, as I was reading the Nigeria book, and as people read it, they can kind of go along on that journey with him. You can see that he's kind of evolving 
He's, he comes there as a PhD student. He's eager. He's ready for this experience. I'm going to Africa. I'm going to learn the Akpeye language. It's, there's almost a romantic, uh, you know, a romantic fiction about it. And on the, the cruise over, um, he, he's, uh, he wanted to sit with people who, uh, people from Africa rather than Europeans, you know, and it was, he was like the only person doing it. They were like separated otherwise, but he was just ready to, to be with the locals and learn the language. And by the time he leaves, he, he's almost kind of, um, that that excitement has kind of faded away. He's become one of them almost. You know, they they came to love him. The children would come around just to play tricks on him. Uh, you know, they called him white man. And uh, his 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 daughter was about eighteen months when they came, and two and a half when they left. I, I think, and um, she could speak Ekpeye better than he could. By the time they left, she had become one of the one of the kids. And they had kind of become part of the community. They they understood they would never really be part of them, and they were always different. And um, they called them by kind of outsider terminology. But the people came to trust them. They came to them with problems. His wife actually has uh, – she had medical training. I think she was a doctor. And so they uh, they tried not to kind of advertise that because everyone would come to them. But uh, she was able to offer medical assistance to people when they were really in need. They were able to – uh, minister to people uh, as much as they could, but he also had that tension that uh, a lot of PhD students have of, I have to get my classwork done, I have to get my dissertation done, I want to serve people and love people, but I have to do this work too. So he had those tensions going on. But uh, by the time he left, he had a, a real um, understanding personally of what it was like for a people group that do not have the Word of God in their language, and that fueled his conviction for the rest of his career that he was going to do everything he could to make sure that we had as many translations done as possible. Mm. I love it, man. Uh, yeah, I think, I hope and think that some of our audience are considering, you know, is this something for me? Um, it's obviously going to be a different ball game. I mean, even just my conversation with Todd Price, who works with Pioneers um, a year or two ago now, about what it looks like now to do Bible translation in multiple dialects in an area and how technology aids those things. I mean, it's just fantastic. But I mean, to, to say I, I don't want to diminish um, the excellence of research and scholarship that I'm producing even a little bit, but I also want to be on the ground. I want to be deploying this. I want to be bending all of this toward getting people scripture in their own language. I think that's fantastic. Um, my, I'm going to pray after this episode that God calls one person at least who's listening to go do that. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Um, but that's my prayer. And man, I'm uh, excited for people to pick up these books and learn a little bit more about David Clark and what God's done in his life. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.